When we listen to a piece of classical music, some of us might think we hear a story in the melody, but others will not. Some of us might know about the life of the composer and project their biography onto the piece, but others will listen with ears unbiased by context. The problem is that meaning doesn't actually live anywhere that can be pinpointed in a particular sound or melody. Novels, on the other hand, tell us a story both about the characters within the text and the music they listen to. So what happens when we read about music in fiction? Can novels also help us to imagine the story of a tune? These are difficult and perhaps ultimately unanswerable questions, but Katie Harling Lee invites you to try in this composition of words and music. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded at our series of public late summer lectures in 2019. Due to copyright restrictions, we're unable to integrate some of the music directly in the podcast. But search for the podcast on readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com and you'll be able to listen to the missing tracks there. I'm going to play you an extract from a piece of classical music that will then be discussed further in this lecture. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the piece of music is, but some of you might recognise it. But what I want you all to do is to try to really listen to the music. Don't let your mind wander away, thinking about what's for dinner or so on. If you find your mind wandering, just bring your attention back to the music. And as you listen, just have a think about some of these questions. So, do you experience any particular emotional responses to the music? Um, Do you see any particular images in your mind's eye, conjured by the sound? How does the piece make you feel? And do you have any memories of this piece of music or any associations? And do you like it? So, think about these questions as we just listen to this little extract. For copyright reasons, we are unfortunately unable to play this extract from Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, First Movement, in this podcast. But if you visit our blog at readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com, you'll find a link to the relevant audio posted there. I want you to hold that music and the thoughts that you first had to it in your mind, because I'm now going to read an extract from a novel which describes this very piece. Moderato, to begin with. The opening measures of a condemned man's testimony played across a landscape of black earth and brown stubble. Relentless Midwestern farmland and Shostakovich's fifth, both spread out in front of elves, pliant, empty and terrifying, made for each other. The jagged theme and its canonic echo tore out of the fiat speakers. He'd heard the movement too many times in his life to count, He knew how the thing was built, the spare counterpoint, the canonic echoes, the chromatic ambiguity, the concision, the relentless reworking of that blunt first theme. Once when he was young, Els had believed that music could save a person's life. He could think of nothing now but all the ways it might get a person killed. So, what did you think of the quotation's description? Do you see where it's coming from? The quotation emphasizes a feeling of dread, emptiness, bluntness. There's a feeling of threat in the literary extract, and it is possible to hear a feeling of threat in the piece. But these feelings aren't just informed by the music, however. They're also informed by the historical context in which the piece was composed, and the legends attached to it. This is what the quotation is referring to when it refers to this piece as the opening measures of a condemned man's testimony. The condemned man is Dmitry Shostakovich, a condemned Russian composer living under Stalin and living under the threat of being criticized by the state for his music, where punishment could mean death. Does knowing that affect how you now hear the piece again? 
These are a lot of the questions um, that we're going to be considering today. This is just a little listening introduction, a taster of what's to come, because today I'm talking about different ways of listening with the help of contemporary literature. So the quotation I've read to you is from Orfeo by Richard Powers. And in Orfeo, there's a quotation that captures what is termed the, quote, problem with music. And it's relevant to our discussion today. So I quote, even the slightest tune sounded like a story. Melody played on the brain. The tale came across clearer than words, but there was no tale. And this is the problem with the meaning of music. We might listen and feel convinced we hear a story or something else. Others might not be so convinced. But ultimately, it's extremely difficult to pin down where this meaning might be in the actual music and or whether the meaning that people claim to hear in the sounds is actually in their thoughts. So this is a question we're considering today, and it's a question which is explored in a number of novels, a few of which you'll hear from. Um, but before I give some more examples, I'm just going to explain a little bit more about my reproach. So when discussing listening to meaning of music, we have to be aware of two divergent opinions in musicology on the matter. So on one side, there's formalism, which stresses that music is an autonomous identity, and it's a structure of forms with no extra musical meaning, i.e. there's no meaning outside of what can be found in the sound structure of the music. Now, this view held strong until the end of the 20th century, and then new musicology was developed. And this is on the other side of the argument. Um, as Smith writes, quote, it overthrew the modernist idea that music is self-referential and autonomous. And instead, it considers music as a cultural construct and musical analysis is then embedded in a culturally informed context, to quote Smith. Now, both of these now hold sway and debate with each other. But when considering the use of music in literature, if it's described according to the formalist arguments, then those descriptions will be full of extremely technical terms. And only readers who are highly trained musicians would understand. And even then, it would be quite hard work trying to figure out what was being explained. So instead, in, no in the novels, we often find what Benson terms literary music. And this describes the music heard, heard and often leans towards ideas found in new musicology, the idea that music can be expressive and linked to cultural issues. Yet, the idea that music can be autonomous doesn't get left by the wayside in the novels, and often it's one of its selling points, one of the reasons why it has such significance in the text. For example, the idea that music could be autonomous from the conflict context in which a character might find themselves. So therefore, when reading these novels, I'm considering this, and it's across my whole research. Do the novels appear to present music as self-referential and autonomous, like in formalism, or do they seem influenced by develops in new musicology? Or, as I think, do they engage with the possibility of both interpretations of music? Today, you'll see and hear a mix of both. Now, there are a lot of big questions today about music and meaning. And so today's focus, I'm mainly aiming to ask a lot of questions. I'm not promising loads of answers, but I'm hoping to get you thinking about music and about music and literature in new and different ways. And I'm going to do this by playing a few examples, so like we've had at the beginning. So we'll play a musical piece that I won't tell you what it is um, for most of them. And then we'll hear some of the literary descriptions of that piece, and then we'll listen again. The aim is to see how a character's context within the setting of the novel affects their listening experience and how our reading of those experiences affects our own listening so that ultimately the time and place of a character's listening experience will affect their understanding of the music and it will affect the significance of that particular musical reference in the text. And in today's time and place at this late summer lecture, I plan to affect your own listening experiences of these pieces and all future music you might listen to. 
it's time to get you thinking as well as listening, is my aim. Now, some would argue that writing about music is futile, impossible, and possibly never reaches the true experience of music. I'm going to disagree with that today, because writing about music is another way of interpreting it. And each written description of the musical piece can possibly add to our understanding of that piece, whether we agree with the description or not. So each interpretation can then add to our understanding of the novel in question and the significance of the music in the text, because ultimately I'm approaching this from a literary point of view. Now, before we get to the examples, I need to explain about the text I'm using. So I have a selection of novels which I've identified and categorized under a new term, and it's the musico-literary novel. This simply defined is a novel which is thematically concerned with music. That's thematically on the literary sense, not the musical. Now, I take this term from what is known as musico-literary studies. It's an interdisciplinary practice, which, as Benson defines it, where musicology is newly attentive to literature and literary studies is newly cognizant of musicology. Now, there is such thing as a musical novel defined by Peterman, but that is in terms of the musical structure and form. So the novel structure is based off musical structure. But this one is, focuses on content, hence my need for a new term. Now, to explain a little bit further so you get an idea, a musical literary novel will have a number of features, and I'm still in the process of identifying those. But first and foremost, it will include characters with relationships to music. So they might be composers, they might be performing musicians, um, they might be music listeners, or they might be a mix of all three. But more than that, the novels will use music to explore other concepts, and so they might use musical metaphor, musical analogy, and musical simile. Overall, music is a consistent theme in the novel, and it's not just surface-level content. It's part of the meaning-making process in that novel. Now, because there are actually more of these types of novels than you might think, I have narrowed down my focus to these musical-literary novels which are set during recent conflicts. But there's another reason for this. I'm interested in how these, musics, these texts sorry, combine music with literature to explore our relationship with music. A musical literary novel set during conflict, where a character's musical life is threatened, push this relationship to the extreme. And through this extreme setting, we may improve our understanding of how an individual engages with music within the text. As they say, pressure produces refinement, and the pressure of conflict on music pushes our understanding of music's importance, significance, and limits to the test. To quote Adler and Ippolito, extreme cases are valuable, in revealing phenomena that are often camouflaged in less extreme, more common, and therefore more familiar circumstances. Now, I also briefly need to explain my use of the term classical music. So to be simple and clear, this is classical music is the most generic term, rather than the specific classical style. Um, this is the idea of the genre of classical music, the more popular idea. Now, I have multiple reasons for focusing on classical music. Primarily, there exist a number of novels as as you will see, which turn to classical music in these extreme settings, and such a reliance on that particular genre needs considering. But a potential explanation for the repeated use of classical music could be found in a novel by Pless, Mack, and Harris on art, ethics, and promo the promotion of human dignity. They identify that the context of a classical music concert, with its formal performance structure and formal dress, and its history of relating to nobility, gives classical music a sense of dignity. Now, there are issues to be considered here because we could question classical music's relationship to class, status, and colonial history as well. But regardless of that, classical music often takes on an aura of dignity. Thus, when dignity is conjured in a setting full of indignity, such as war or political upheaval, it may be that a classical music performance may be heard as a call for dignity for all. 
The dignity of status and the dignity of dignified behaviour are exemplars which work to enhance the dignity of all who pass by, observe and listen to that music. So, before I start reading any extracts and playing the music, I'm giving a very brief introduction to the novels you'll hear from today. So, first up, we have Orfeo, who we heard from at the beginning. This novel is set during two conflicts, alternating between them through flashbacks, and that's the Cold War and the War on Terror. Um, the novel is unique from my other novels in that the character is in one way a cause of the conflict in which he finds himself in a slightly bizarre plot. So, to put it simply, we have Peter Ells, who's a composer. He's known as Ells. But he also has an interest in science. And so he attempts to genetically modify a bacteria in order to insert a musical composition into its DNA. However, such experiments cause US Homeland Security to investigate Ells on the regards of bioterrorism. Um, and so he goes on the run, turning fugitive. Now, we then have Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeleine Tian. Now, this novel set mostly during Mao's Cultural Revolution in China. It covers a large time period, and like, like Orfeo, and similarly, it's written in a non-linear form, so we're often moving between stories and memories. It also um, covers numerous characters. A number of them are musicians at the Shanghai Conservatory of music, for Music. So I'm not going to explain who all the characters are in this novel, but key to our understanding today is that during the Cultural Revolution, a large amount of classical music was denounced as bourgeois and banned. So characters who were musicians, often they found their music threatened or taken away, and in connection, they found themselves at threat. We then have The Noise of Time by Julian Barnes. Now, this novel was set in Russia, or Soviet Union, during the rise of the Soviet Union, um, including the rule and death of Stalin. Now, interestingly here, the character is Dmitry Shostakovich. It's the composer of the piece we listened to at the beginning. This is a fictionalized imagining of the composer, but it proves interesting in imagining Shostakovich's thoughts behind his compositions. And then we have Fugitive Pieces by Anne Michaels. So Michael's novel is set during the Holocaust and World War II, but it focuses less on the experience of the Holocaust itself than on the recovery, so the experience of trying to live after the Holocaust. Um, the novel follows two characters, although our focus is on Jacob and then his sister, Bella, who disappears during the invasion of Poland, and her fate remains unknown, which haunts Jacob for the rest of his life. So that's just a brief overview of my novels. And now it's time for our next example, so some more listening to music. Um, now I'm going to play the piece without telling you what it is, like before. And as you listen, remember the questions we had earlier. Think about how you feel, how you react to the sound of the music. So let's listen. For copyright reasons, we are unfortunately unable to play this extract from Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, Third Movement, in this podcast. But if you visit our blog at readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com, you'll find a link to the relevant audio posted there. So, I have a confession, we are in fact listening, continuing with Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5, but this is the third movement, the Largo. Uh, so, his, Shostakovich's symphony is quite a useful example to focus on, uh, because meaning has been applied to it since its first performance, and these meanings vary, along a political knife edge. Commu the communication of feelings or thoughts is paramount to our cultural understanding of the piece, and to the novels which reference it. So now that you've heard the musical extract, I'm going to read you a quotation referencing the piece, this time from Do Not Say We Have Nothing. Ai Ming sat down and gazed into the speakers, as if into the face of a person she knew. Even I, as young as I was, felt disturbed by the music and the emotions it communicated. Or perhaps this is all hindsight, 
because later I learned that Shostakovich had written this symphony in 1937 at the height of Stalin's terror when more than half a million people were executed, including some of Shostakovich's closest friends. Under terrible pressure, he composed the symphony's third movement, a largo that moved its audience to tears by restating and dismantling the theme of the first movement. What initially had seemed simple and familiar, even artless, was turned inside out and refolded into another dimension. The first movement had been deceptive. Inside, concealed and waiting to be heard, were ideas and selves that had never been erased. So there's numerous ideas being explored here, more than we have time to discuss in detail, but I'll just point out a few. So we've got the concept of being disturbed by the music because it communicates emotions. Now, relating earlier to our discussion, we could question this idea, but so too is it questioned here in the perhaps. Highlighting my argument that this is not simply a novel about music at service level, but it's one engaged with these questions about music and its meaning. So to consider the problems here, and the problems with music, think about these questions, just to consider. If music communicates an emotion, how does it do that? Is the emotion you are feeling coming from the very notes of the music, or are they coming from your knowledge of the context of a piece's composition? On a deeper, harder to distinguish level, we could ask, is the disturbed element coming from the mix of minor and major phrases in the music, or is it coming from our Western ears association of happy with major and sad with minor? Just to throw that one out there. Now, along with being disturbed, there's also a theme of deception and revealing. So those ideas and selves are concealed and waiting to be heard. This is the idea of identity might be contained in the music. And to understand this idea, let me explain. This piece was written during political upheaval, when the creative actions of Soviet Union citizens were under close scrutiny. And the same was true for China in the setting of Do Not Say We Have Nothing. If your work did not communicate an idea that was clear to the people and positive about the regime, however one argues that communication, then your life was at risk. Yet if you followed the new restrictions, yourself could be at risk. And it becomes a question of life or identity for certain characters. And so this novel presents music as a way to hide one's true identity in music through its ambiguous interpretations. Whether one can do such a thing is another matter, but here the hope that, mu that this music offers this is a possibility. Now on the theme of revealing, we then have a short quotation from Orfeo, the novel I used at the opening of this lecture, which also describes this movement. So I quote, The naked pain stretched out in front of him. It spoke of whatever was left after the worst that humans did to each other. Here was music simple and populist, just as Stalin commanded and in a language whose anguish everyone recognised. Naming the crime so bluntly should have been suicide, but to convict Shostakovich for speaking out, the state would have to admit to crimes worthy of this Largo. Now this one emphasises the Largo movement as revealing. We've got naked pain, the lang it's language whose anguish everyone recognised. Both these quotations are focusing on communication through or in music, and that's our concern here. These quotations raise many questions about the music and how we listen to it, particularly in how we listen to it in relation to the way that it's referenced in the novel. We can think about these questions as we have another listen to the piece, bearing in mind this new listening interpretation that's presented in the novel. Do you hear clear anguish? Do you hear deception revealed compared to the first movement? Do you hear just music? Well, let's listen. 
For copyright reasons, we are unfortunately unable to play this extract from Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, Third Movement, in this podcast. But if you visit our blog at readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com, you'll find a link to the relevant audio posted there. I have to admit that my first introduction to this piece was when I played it in an orchestra, and our conductor told us the history of this piece, or the legend. So I've never heard this piece and not known its history. Perhaps some of you are different here, and in a way I envy you the experience just now of listening before and after your knowledge, so it's just something to think about. Now, staying on this symphony, we're going to just turn to the final movement. So first we're going to listen to the very beginning. For copyright reasons, we are unfortunately unable to play you this extract from the opening of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, Fourth Movement, in this podcast. But if you visit our blog at readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com, you'll find a link to the relevant audio posted there. Quite the powerful finale, isn't it? Um, Unfortunately, I don't have time to play the whole of this movement, but for our discussion, I'm just going to play the ending as well. For copyright reasons, we are unfortunately unable to play this extract from the close of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, Fourth Movement, in this podcast. But if you visit our blog at readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com, you'll find a link to the relevant audio posted there. It's just the sort of symphony ending one might expect. Loud, clashing cymbals, major key, the trumpet fanfare, the timpanis booming. But think about what your reaction to this is. Do you feel joy, enjoyment, perhaps adrenaline? Or maybe it seems too over the top. Well, now let's listen to some literary extracts describing this movement. This is a a short quotation from Orfeo. So I quote, That demonic march, driving bass punctuated by skittering winds, crescendo, accelerando, then the flood of strings falling into formation. And then we have a reference to this movement in Do Not Say We Have Nothing. It's described as containing inauthentic joy. And I quote, The fifth was everything Sparrow remembered, tortured, contradictory, lurid, gleeful. Now we've heard these descriptions, uh, let's just listen to the piece again. And then here's the ending of the movement again. Can you hear inauthentic joy? Can you hear in it, if you think about the context of the piece's composition and the setting of these novels?
It's interesting, isn't it, that this piece, granted in fragmented form as you've heard it today, can potentially sound like a fantastic celebration of sound without knowledge of the context. But when we know the context, our understanding has a potential to change, considering the possibility for hope of maintaining one's sense of identity through music when you're living in a country which is threatening every thought you have. Now, there's quite the contrast in interpretations, and the root of it lies in the ambiguity of musical meaning, if it can have any specific meaning as we understand it in our world outside of music. For example, one interpretation of Shostakovich's symphony is that the Largo, the third slow movement we heard, represents the suffering, which was then overcome by the rise of the Soviet Union, noted in the joy of the last movement. However, one could alternately interpret this piece as representing those same things, but in a mocking tone as the Soviet Union takes over at the end, due to the over-the-top nature of the final movement. Now, to understand this idea further, I'm just going to read you a quotation from The Noise of Time. So this is imagining Shostakovich's thoughts in composing the composition, but again, it's imagined. So I quote, Let power have the words, because words cannot stain music. Music escapes from words. That is its purpose and its majesty. Those with asses' ears could hear in his symphony what they wanted to hear. They missed the screeching irony of the final movement, that mockery of triumph. They heard only triumph itself, some loyal endorsement of Soviet music. He had ended the symphony fortissimo and in the major. What if he had ended it pianissimo and in the minor? On such a thing, such things might a life, might several lives, turn. So these extracts that we've heard so far um, show how these novels explore, within their setting of conflict and political upheaval, the ambiguity of music, and they present it as a potential hiding place in the struggle to survive. They raise, uh, the ideas raise, um, raise issues in music philosophy and musicological analyses of the pieces in question, but that doesn't negate the fact that in these texts, music is given, or at least hoped to have, these sorts of powers. Now, for the last little section of this presentation, we're going to turn to, briefly to a few more examples from the novels, just so you can get a wider idea of the diversity of uses which music is put to. So, we turn to this one, which is quite different in style. So first of all, we'll listen, and I won't tell you what it is. Bach's famous Goldberg variations. This is the first aria. It's quite different from our previous piece. Rather than perhaps hearing lamentable emotion, we might hear pleasantness, peacefulness. There's also an element of control, and in this, this is the interpretation which is important to our understanding of its use in Do Not Say We Have Nothing. Now, the extract I'm about to read you is from the perspective of Zuli. She's a 14-year-old, highly skilled violinist, potentially a prodigy. Um, who at this point in the narrative, she's at the Shanghai Conservatory of Music, at this point she has suffered harsh criticisms and a public beating due to her connection with classical bourgeois music. She's reached the limit of what she can endure, and like many real people who experience the political upheavals in China, she commits suicide. 
Now, this quotation I'm about to read you is from the paragraphs directly preceding that act. She wanted to walk slowly. There was no longer any need to rush. Time extended inside Bach. There were repetitions and canons. There were circles and spirals. There were many voices and honest humility, as if he knew that reincarnation and loss were inseparable. In this brief window when she still knew who she was, before they broke her down again, she wished, wished to choose a future and to leave. How could she put these thoughts in a note? She wanted to preserve the core of herself. If they took away music, if they broke her hands, who would she be? The first aria of the Goldberg Variations was also its end. Could it be that everything in this life had been written from the beginning? She could not accept this. Now, in Do Not Say We Have Nothing, Bach's music is valued highly for its use of patterns and it's referenced multiple times. Um, and these patterns offer the idea of a source of stability for characters who find their lives and their sense of self threatened. So for context, this piece begins and ends with the same short aria, and then what follows are a series of variations on that theme, i.e. there is variation and repetition combined. Now, the sublime control of this music acts as a contrast to the upheaval, and rather than seeming ridiculous, for these characters who are musicians, it offers a source of hope. But just as Zuli seems to find comfort in Bach, she also wants to rebel against the idea that everything has been written from the beginning, that there is a fate she cannot control. And control is key to our understanding of the significance of this music in the novel. So bearing all this in mind, let's just listen once more to the piece with this knowledge. to one more example. I said I'd briefly get through these ending ones. So first again, we'll listen. It's an intermezzo written by Brahms, um, and it's used repeatedly in fugitive pieces, as it's one of the pieces which Jacob, the protagonist, remembers his sister, Bella, playing often at home and practicing. Now, Bella disappeared when German soldiers invaded their home in Poland. Jacob has no idea in the narrative, and he never learns what happened to her, and this haunts him for, into his life as he grows up in the narrative. So Bella is thus associated with music, because she used to play and practice regularly at home, filling Jacob's childhood memories. 
but also with silence, because he's not heard her play since she disappeared and history is silent about her fate. It's an interesting dynamic, and I'm now going to read you an extract from Fugitive Pieces. Now, in the novel, the narrative is interspersed with italicized quotations, which are Jacob's memories of Bella speaking during her practices, little notes to herself. The context here is that Jacob is imagining Bella's experience in a concentration camp, but he doesn't actually know if she ever got there. I want to remain close to Bella. To do so, I blaspheme by imagining. At night, the wooden bunk wears through her skin. Icy feet push into the back of Bella's head. Now I will begin the intermezzo. I must not begin too slowly. There is no room. Bella's arms cover herself. At night, when everyone is awake, I will not listen to the crying. I will play the whole piece on my arms. Her skin is coming apart at her elbows and behind her ears. Not too much pedal. You can spoil Brahms with too much pedal, especially the intermezzos. The opening must be played clear as water. Bar 62, crescendo, pay attention. Now, the extract goes on in this way, using music as a distraction and some sort of survival technique. And like in Do Not Say We Have Nothing, music becomes a source of stability or focus here, this time in the act of practicing it. However, unlike in previous examples, this is not the description of a character using music while in the midst of conflict. It's a character, Jacob, imagining his sister Bella using music to deflect the horrors of the Holocaust in which she is suffering. Music is used here by the imagined Bella to fight off the reality of the concentration camp, but it's also used to bring the reality of the concentration camp into Jacob's mind. So bearing all this thought in mind, let's listen one more time. So, across all of these examples, there's a clear theme. Music is presented as an alternative place. It might be a place in which to express one's own true thoughts. It might be a place of escape. But music in all of these texts is a, both a closely felt presence and a distant place in which to retreat. Like the music itself both being in the text but silent, music is both within and outside of the literary text, and it's both within and outside of ourselves. And that's where its power lies in the novels. So from these examples, we may then consider music as having a dual existence, as something separate, like in the formalist approach mentioned earlier, and as something always heard within a specific context, with a specific history or legend attached to it, like in new musicology. I am hope from today's listening and reading examples, you may be able to more deeply engage with this duality of music's meaning, so to speak. Although there are so many more musical references in the novels I'm looking at. Overall, I hope today I've managed to give you a good taste of what I'm working on and encourage you to listen and read novels like these that reference music in a new light, always raising more and more questions. 
Before I finish, I want to acknowledge the generous funding of the Wolfson Foundation, who are funding my PhD studies. I wouldn't be here without them. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers.